You're listening to 2.23am with Dr. Christine McDougall. Are you ready for a new kind of success and fulfillment? End the silent struggle. Join us as Dr. Christine McDougall speaks to successful, high-achieving men as they share their journey towards a more fulfilling and sustainable life and business and discover the better alternative. It's 2.23am and the life of your future is calling. Adam Jacoby is the founder, chief steward and council member of global democracy movement My Vote, which was a finalist in the 2016 Singularity University Grand Global Challenge Awards. He is a member of the UN Blockchain for Social Impact Group and is featured in the book Democracy Squared. Despite his career milestones, Adam's most important job is that of partner to Mel and father to four wonderful angels. Kennedy, Percy, Avery, and Jasper. Adam lives in Melbourne, Australia, but travels extensively. The world is his innovation lab. Our conversation today ranges from fathering, dark nights, asking for help, and working with a highly diverse team. We ended the conversation with a discussion about power. Adam talked about three types of power and how they are playing out on the world political stage currently. We talked about the global propaganda machine led by Rupert Murdoch and how those who have enduring leadership power are comfortable presenting all sides of an argument as a matter of integrity and respect. Just a heads up, one small section of the recording was damaged and a few words are lost. Please enjoy this conversation with Adam Jacoby. Adam, it's very lovely to have you on the podcast. Thank you for joining us. Thanks for inviting me. As you know, the topic of this conversation is really what it means to be a man in today's world in the, clim- in the climate that we have currently, the geopolitical climate, the Me Too movement, the uh, rise of feminism, all of those sort of tensions uh, that uh, I, I feel uh, many men are at the intersection of that with uh, a bit like being in a, um, a wind tunnel and not... Not necessarily sure how to navigate. So, how is how is this time in your life landing for you? Um, it, look, that, I mean, the time is is no more or less um, unusual than than any other. To be honest, um, okay. I think when you've when you've placed yourself um, deliberately, sort of in the middle of the vacuums of change that happen in a whole variety of different areas, um, this just becomes another vacuum of change. Um, so. I think probably where it becomes most interesting is is not from a business context, but rather as a father. And I'm a father of two boys and a father of two girls. Mm. And I think um, that that makes it interesting. So d- definitely say more about that, about uh, being a father of two boys and two girls right now. Uh, and then I'll circle back to being in this vacuum of change, which is a very interesting way of describing it. Yeah, I mean, look, I, I think... One of the things, and, and I was um, really, um, I was really benefited by having a couple of parents who were very hands-on and very involved and um, incredibly tolerant and open-minded. And so my sister and I, my younger sister and I, um, were brought up in a household where everybody was always equal, um, and we discussed um, pretty much everything. Um, and there was nothing to do. And there also, although there were expectations on us, we were free to explore and, and be and become whoever we wanted to be and become. 
I, I think that's helped in my fatherhood and my perspective about my children. I mean, like any parents, I have my own expectations. But, uh, but ultimately, the critical thing is that my boys and my girls are brought up in exactly the same way. There's no set of expectations for one that's different for the other. Um, there's no sense that the girls can or can't become anything that the boys can or can't become. Um, but equally, trying to raise... So my, my kids are quite young. Uh, my oldest kids, so I have a, a, an 11-year-old boy and a 9-year-old girl, mm-hmm. and then a 4-year-old girl and a 2-year-old boy. And so my younger ones, um, you know, are, are not quite part of or don't recognise the change or acknowledge the change that's going on because they don't know anything any different. They're not quite old enough to quite comprehend what's going on anyway. Um, but my older ones certainly do understand what's happening. And, and even um, in the way that they consume information and the nature of their engagements online and um, the expectations they have about work and, and self, there's no question that, that the tide is changing and there is a sense that, A, my son needs to be more mindful about the way that he engages with everybody, but but especially with with girls and and women, and equally, my nine year old daughter has this. She's just a superstar. Has this in, incredible capacity to sort of stamp herself in and on any situation that eventuates. And so, I, I think it's been really empowering to watch her um, grow into this young force of nature that will not be held back by any social expectation or, or any of the past misogynic, misogynistic expectations within the community. She's, she's there to be the full Percy and, and nothing will stop her from being the full Percy. Mm, lovely. And, and so if we circle back to your, your family, because that, that isn't usual, and did you have an awareness that you had this uh, sort of quite unique experience as a, as a child? No. Not, not at all. In fact, it, uh, not only did I not have an awareness of it, it, it didn't even register me that it could be different until I became a parent and then saw, um, A, sort of had to go through it and experience it myself and then got to watch my friends with their children and just see the different dynamics. And there are, there are a couple of good friends I had growing up um, who I'm no longer very close to, but, but I certainly recall that they, they grew up in really rigid environments where you know it was kind of like you did homework for three hours a night you didn't talk to anybody and and fun was this nice idea that happened somewhere else and and, you know that was completely different to the way I grew up and probably the reason they did so much better at school than I did was because they were forced to study all the time but nevertheless I, I think having that freedom and that sense that you don't need to be what anybody else expects you to be but you can sort of explore that for yourself gives you an ability to have life experience and certainly you know my perspective is that the, the greatest leaders that I've met and I know that you know you do a lot of leadership work are those people who have had um, a, a varied experience uh, who have enabled them to be in be you know enable themselves to be in positions where they're out of their comfort zone and they're doing things that they may, they may not perceive themselves to be great at but but through trial and error you start to figure out what the best path is forward. But I think if you constantly tow somebody else's line um, and you're not really allowed to experience anything outside of that, then I, I think adult could can, can become a struggle and I think parenthood can be really difficult. Not that I'm the world's perfect father, but, but I think it becomes even harder if you haven't had a varied experience. Yeah, and it's not really about perfection, is it? It's it's because it, none of us are going to... I'm a parent of a 27-year-old daughter and... I'm definitely not claiming to be a perfect parent, but 
I do know that I've created um, the space for somebody, uh, for my daughter to grow into sort of the full measure of her being, which is mm. really, which is really the role, uh, I believe, of a parent. So your 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 eleven year old son is entering this that stage. <laughs> he is indeed. <laughs> the text messages are beginning to come in. Okay, <laughs> and. And if he's got the, the background that you're supporting him to have, he's entering that stage in a world where, again, he, he's, he's going to be somewhat of an exception from my experience uh, to some of his colleagues, uh, some of his friends and peers. Look, that may, that may be the case. Uh, mm. he, he's, a particularly, he's a particularly smart kid mm-hmm. and he's a particularly sensitive kid anyway. And so of all of my children, he's probably the one who is most thoughtful about the feelings okay. of others around him. Right. And so I think he's predisposed to a particular kind of behaviour that will serve him well in this changing world. But at the same time, I think he's also, as much as he has that going through him, he also has this stream of being, you know, quite um, uh, a character and quite out there. Um, he's, he's reasonably good looking, he's good at sport, he's very smart, so he's, he's quite popular. Um, and I think becoming a man and just at the front end of puberty and all these sorts of things, he will no doubt start to, to change and have different feelings that he has no experience of. And so whilst I think as a character in, inside of him, he's well positioned and prepared for some of what's about to come, there's no doubt there'll be changes that none of us have expected and, and we don't really know what's coming yeah yeah that's the again the role of the parent and so in reference to being a father at this time now and looking forward are there any areas that you feel um nervous about or unprepared for or uh have some anxiety is there is there anything that is like yeah if this happens i'm not quite sure how i'm going to handle it yeah um no, I, I don't think there are a lot. I'm less concerned about the uh, expected changes yes. through growing old than I am about the external changes that are happening in our environment around us that have nothing to do with feminism or any of those things, but more about the way um, decisions get made and laws are created and the oppression of people in society in general and sort of the big brother nature of government now. And, I mean, they're the things that I work in every day, which is why they're sort of top of mind for me. Yes. Um, and so they're the things I'm, I'm deeply concerned about as a, as a father. And, you know, it's the reason I started my vote in the first place. Yes. And so as a, as a father raising children in this time, and it's one of the things that I feel very passionate about, is how we're raising children to also be aware of being citizens. Mm-hmm. And, yeah, and what what does citizen mean is the yeah, other thing. Yes, <laughs> and and to know that that we actually have the opportunity to do to make things change, which is I think part of what we're seeing to a degree in some of the youth in the United States. They're recognizing they're finally waking up and going. Oh, well, not, maybe not finally waking up, but they're recognizing that that if they start speaking up and acting and becoming a, a, a fairly significant united voice, then it might not happen in their time frame that they're interested in, like in the next week, but the it persistence, it, it's likely to change. Well, I, I, yeah, I think that's right. I mean, I, th- I think there are two parts to that, to be honest. There is a part that says, do not necessarily, and hopefully this is something that, that 
my partner and I are instilling in the kids. There is a sense that says do not necessarily just accept what's happening around you as a fait accompli that you can't do anything about. Yes. And then the next the next step of that is to then be very critical in your thinking so that you can actually understand what's going on. So al- although you may feel that something isn't right, to then be able to understand what it is, articulate that so that you can plan a path forward to do something about it. Um, they're quite different skill sets. And I think certainly the work that I do around the world, I, I find a lot of people who are um, doing the first part, so they have a sense that things aren't right, Yes. but they're not doing a lot of the second part, which is, well, what is going wrong and how can I be a part of the solution? And and certainly to your point about what's happening in America, I was really fortunate earlier this year to um, be in Houston and give a speech with some of the kids from the, the Never Again movement, the Emma Gonzalez and David Hoggs and Marcel McClintons and those incredibly inspirational anti-gun violence kids. Yes. Um, and I spent a few days with them and one day in particular, uh, for the whole afternoon before the rally that we all spoke at, they were in, in our hotel. We all had lunch together for a while, spent several hours. And, and you know, this was a room of, so I'm a nearly 43-year-old man. This was a room of 16, 17, 18-year-old kids yes. um, who were so well, they were so thoughtful and so aware. Um, they were so capable and confident. Um, it, it was just inspiring to spend some time with people who genuinely were changing the world or certainly changing their world, you know, the, the nation that they they are growing up in, and doing it as a group of, of, of youth. You know, they, they yes, there are some older people there to help them, but but in essence what they're trying to drive and how they're driving it is, is all being, being done by them. Mm. Um, and that was a, a great blessing this year to be able to spend some time with them, and a, a number of them I call friends now, um, and speak to semi-regularly. Um, and just to watch that growth. And, and, you know, when I came home, I said to my older kids in particular, you know, you, you need to watch what these kids are doing because there's not necessarily that that's an issue for you because gun violence isn't an issue in Australia. But but the things that are issues for you, you, you can take a leaf out of this book and just recognise that you can do something about it. Just because you're 10 or 12 or 14 or 15 or, or 17, it doesn't mean that you just have to sit and accept. Hmm. That is a really good news story to hear, <laughs> and it does. It makes me feel that there is uh, there is hope for some of the stuff that looks absolutely hopeless. <laughs> well, nothing's hopeless. It just no. it requires will, and then it, and then it requires commitment. Yes, yes, and you've certainly demonstrated a lot of that in your own life. And I'm going to circle back to your comment of vacuum of change because you said at the front of this conversation that. Uh, and, and I really understand that, that there's always change going on. At this particular time, what I, what I perceive in the work that I've done with men over the, the years is that there is, there's been a lot of, lot of support for feminism and there's been a lot of women generally speak to each other in a very close, intimate way on a regular basis. Generally, men don't tend to do that. And so the... The, the question of what it means to be a man in today's world includes things like vulnerability, what's strength, what is yeah. masculinity, all of those sorts of things. Uh, so can you speak to, well, first of all, do, are, are you one of, the, one of the men that actually finds it very comfortable speaking or hanging out with mates and talking about stuff beyond the superficial football score? Um, so I'll, <laughs> let me answer it this way. So I, I don't I don't tend to have a lot of mates, to be okay. honest. Okay. Um, I, I have a lot of people that 
I'm friendly with. Yes. Um, I have a few people that I'm close with and I have fewer still who I genuinely trust. Yeah. And that's part of the nature of my world. However, uh, in any environment, whether they're, you know, from from acquaintances to colleagues to, to friends to sort of the inner circle, uh, the vulnerability piece and the the having context for what's around you is always part of those conversations. But I think that that's also part of being in a social movement where people are constantly being led by those passions and by those feelings. And so I can understand why if you're in a suit and tie corporate environment that was largely male oriented, why you might struggle with some of the changes that are happening. But for the last several years, I've been in an environment where those sorts of conversations are just what we do every day. Mm. And, and particularly in our organisation, where we're, you know, the senior team is, is more than 50% women, um, it, that's what it is. It, it, we have a lot of conversations that are not, and I'm not saying we're having the conversations because we're 50% women, I'm saying we are engaged in a community where the how we do things and what we do and why we do it is just as important as how the individuals within the organisation are accepting and dealing with those things because we're in an environment, our work is such that it is personally challenging as well as professionally challenging and it can be dangerous at times and we put ourselves at risk. And so we have to be mindful of those sorts of things and we're always checking in on each other to make sure that we're okay and how can we support each other. And and that doesn't matter if you're a man or woman, everybody gets the same um, attention and care. But, but yeah, we're fairly mindful of those things. So there's a couple of things in there that... that I, is unusual and i am going to stress this it might be very usual for you but it is very unusual so my vote is 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 a tech company using technology to to support the future of democracy have i said that well correctly? we're using tech but we're not we're not a tech company okay um we're a, we're a not-for-profit social movement okay that that uses technology that's built in technology okay um and so yes we're we're about the equality of community, we're about community decision making. We're about doing governance differently and government differently. Yes. Um, but but yeah, we're a social movement more than anything else. We're, okay. And and we're not for profit. Okay. Uh, so thank you. Uh, so it's unusual to get more than fifty percent of the senior team being women uh, across the board. That's unusual. So I just want to give a big tick at the start for that. Uh, is that your common experience in your working life to work on a team of of, of no no okay. it's not I think I think that for the best part of my professional career that actually would have been unheard of a few years ago I for a brief stint I signed a five year contract to be an executive director of a tertiary education institution here and then I didn't last anywhere near the five years I lasted about 18 19 months. But certainly in that environment, um, half of the senior team were, were female. That was probably my first exposure to senior leadership teams where there was gender balance. Mm-hmm. And what was really clear really quickly was how, how better that team performed than any other team I had been part of. And I don't think it was necessarily just the expertise of the individuals. I think it was a perspective and an experience that was brought to the table that you can't have if you're eight white men sitting around a table. Um, And so it wasn't that there was just gender balance, there was also sort of racial diversity and religious diversity. And I think all of those 
changes that we're starting to see in, in our society in terms of making sure that there is greater equality across those different groups, all of them start to add something to the conversation that makes that makes the decision making better. Mm. Well, I would have to agree with you. <laughs> but, uh, so, what what were some of the outstanding uh, the outstanding sort of differences? If you could, if you could just, and and I'm not I'm not speaking about this to defend the the, the women's side of this. I'm actually speaking about it from the point of view of the the quality and the decision making and the environment and all of that sort of stuff. Oh, look, I, I think uh, I mean I think. First and foremost, there is a there's a different dynamic, so mm. it's it's less confrontational. I think when you have a group of guys, particularly if you're at the top of an organisation where there are very healthy egos, what you find largely, certainly in my experience, I can only talk about my experience, is that it can be quite competitive, and that competition can actually be um, counterproductive to what the organisation is trying to achieve. I, I think when when you start to have racial and gender um, diversity. Or closer to balance. Yes. What what happens is you find a more nurturing environment where you don't you're not competing with one another. You recognise that you're actually working with one another. And that that said, I may just have been previously in organisations where the men that I was working with weren't particularly nurturing. I'm not sure, but but certainly there's no question that when you're sitting around a table where there is diversity of of all different kinds, you the nature of your communication is different, the nature of the care for one, and for one another is different because there is a difference of experience. It's less competitive about how far you've gone because we're actually the same. You know, we're both white men in our 40s who went to these private schools and so you seem to have gone further than I have. That's threatening to me. Rather, we're a group of people who have had completely different paths mm. and all of us have something interesting to bring to the table. And I don't feel a need to compete with any of you because none of you have experienced what I've experienced and equally I haven't experienced what you've experienced. And so I just think it's a different dynamic. Yeah, okay, very nice. And so I would imagine that with uh, with my vote being uh, doing the work that it's doing in the world, that there would have been almost a, an out of integrity not having the diversity balance and I mean the multiple diversity balance <clears throat> present in the senior team because <laughs> oh yeah true there, there, there certainly is an integrity issue for us yes. um, around those things but but independent of, of, of integrity it's just in my opinion it's just good governance practice and it's just good management practice I mean you know one of our underlying uh, foundational values is about meritocracy. And so if the best person is a woman or the best person, you know, is an Indigenous community member or the best person comes from another country, well, that's the person who's going to get the opportunity. Mm -hmm. um, it doesn't matter that we went to the same school or that we can talk about footy in the same way or that we... It, those things are irrelevant. The question is who's the best person to do the job? And what you find in a more globalised, multicultural world is that the best person to do the job isn't the same group of people who it's been for the last 150 years. There are more people with great education, with great life experience, who have done things that are valuable to the organisations. And we're moving away from this idea that, you know, you tick the boxes of, I look a certain way and I went to a certain school and I live in a certain suburb and therefore I deserve. That it's, it doesn't make sense anymore. 
Yeah, I, I, I'm just going to sort of push back a little bit on the meritocracy because I've heard that that comment made many times before and there is, um, like anything, it can come with a set of blinkers. It does, uh, yeah, absolutely it can. Yeah, I yeah. totally agree with that. Yeah, and, and more often than not, they're not uh, personally uh, imposed blinkers, they're culturally... Um, they're, they're, yeah, well, they're the challenge... Yeah. The, the challenge with meritocracy is that it comes in a an entrenched environment of disadvantage. So, yes. so if your argument is pure meritocracy, then more often than not, the white, well-educated urban person will get the job because they're the ones that have had the opportunities Correct. to get the education that would lead you to the job. So we're well aware of that. But the nature of our work isn't in that sphere. And yes. so the nature of our work is human to human. And so a lot of that stuff isn't relevant to us because it's all community-based and it's all dealing with people on a day-to-day -day basis and understanding particular cultural perspective. And, and so we look for something slightly different, but I do recognise that what we do is different to what a lot of other, particularly for-profit corporations do. Okay, so so it's meritocracy within a context of, of more social and diverse community engagement anyway. Correct, and, and with a very clear social change um, imperative. Great. Okay. And that makes that that's a, a significant part of the difference. Yeah. Very nice. So so circling back to you and your so are you actually experiencing any tension engaging in the world at this point in time through uh, through being a being a male? So let me give you a, a concrete example. Mm -hmm. I, I've heard people say that uh, there is there there is a heightened level of fear that you can't say it's almost like the political correctness gone mad. You can't say anything or do anything towards a woman that might be perceived as X because they could turn on you and your reputation's gone. You know, like that level of that level of paranoia that that um, some people are either feeling or the media is propagating as a mythology. Yeah. Look, I, I think that it's very hard to answer that question. Am I feeling it? No, I'm not. Can I understand why some people might feel it? Maybe, depending upon their context. I think all of these things are about human relationships. And so, you know, if you're a, both a self-aware but a gen generally aware human being, you know the context of your environment. There are, there are lots of friends I have that are women. There are people that I'm close to who are women for whom we can joke around about stuff. Yes. They joke with me and I joke with them. That's mm -hmm. not necessarily how I would be in every circumstance with every situation because you have to understand where you are. Mm -hmm. um, and there are people who are sensitive and understandably so and, and they have every right to be about those issues. Um, and so it's, it's a matter of just understanding where you are and who you're talking to. People who are very close to you have a different kind of level of intimacy and that's, that's human nature. But, but certainly, I, you know, I don't feel like... I can't walk into a room and be nice to people or be even sort of um, comfortable and casual. Because, like, you know, like even in our office, everybody, you know, often hugs each other when we come in. And, and so that's just kind of our environment. But yes. I'm, I'm well aware that that's not every environment. And I'm also aware that – but I don't feel a fear that if I were to do that, somebody would be out to ruin my career, you know. Yeah. I, yeah, but, but again, I, I operate in a very different space than most other people. Um, but I do feel, you know, and especially when I think about my girls growing up, I, I do feel that there is, there. how do I describe it? Um, it's not a grey area so much as um, there's a challenge at times 
in, I, I imagine for them, in being able to rightfully draw the distinction between where they are prepared to be in more intimate, casual, comfortable situations and behave in a particular way and then put up a wall and say, no, in this particular environment, that's not appropriate. And that's a role and a space that only they can determine. Mm. Um, and I do fear that when they make those distinctions in time, that others won't be able to tell the difference and even understand and respect the fact that it's their decision to make. Right. So if I've, if I've heard you correctly, you're talking about ensuring that they have a sense of their own sovereign decision-making. Well, yeah, their, but all their, better, boundaries, yes, they're, they're, their boundaries. Their boundaries. That's yeah. a better way to say it. Yeah. 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 Okay, great. Uh, so, that, so there's a clear and it might be different in different circumstances and it might be different with different people and it might be different because your two girls are both two different people. Yeah, that's yeah. right. Yeah, Okay. Very good. So uh, can I ask you just a, just a sort of a couple of uh, general questions? I, we talked about vulnerability. <laughs> we talked about vulnerability before. What does it mean for you to be vulnerable and how comfortable are you? Yeah, that's a good question. Um, I think vulnerability starts from um, self-awareness mm -hmm. um, and, and it starts with acknowledging how you feel at any moment of the day. Mm -hmm. I, I then... I then believe it's really important to understand that vulnerability isn't a weakness. Vulnerability is a part of you acknowledging what's going on inside yourself mm -hmm. and then uh, reacting to it in a way to make you feel better. So there are times where, certainly in the past, when I didn't think it was okay to be vulnerable, when you're growing up as a young sort of teenage boy, certainly back in the 70s, 80s, you grow up and, and you weren't allowed to really be vulnerable especially not around your mates. Um, these days, I, I don't really have an issue with it. So I have no issue with crying if I feel like crying. I have no issue saying to my staff, my colleagues, my family, listen, I need, I'm not, I, I'm not feeling right. I need to take a day on my own and be somewhere so I can sort of rebuild and think. And um, like, I, 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 I think self-care is really important when you're in a leadership position. Um, because people are looking for you to be at your best as often as is humanly possible, as, as much as you can. And you can't always be at your best if you're not self-aware and they're not taking care of yourself when you need it. Mm -hmm. um, and part of part of taking care, I think, is allowing a vulnerability. And, and so we had a session actually not that long ago. We had an executive workshop a few weeks back. And it was a, a really sort of emotional experience for everybody and I think in one of our senior executive sessions over a period of about three or four hours just about every single person in the team cried in front of the rest of the team at some point mm -hmm. um, and, and I just think that that's obviously you don't want to be in a working environment where that's happening every five minutes because it's not productive and you're not actually focused on the work but I think at the times where it's appropriate where it's being felt and where support is required I don't think that that's that's unreasonable. I, I think that's it's important, and I also think that the vulnerability creates bonds because if all all you have, and I mean bonds between people, because if all you have is this kind of stoic, superficial perception mm. that you're putting out there of what you're meant to be like or of who you are, and you're never a real human being, it's hard for other human beings to actually empathise with you and connect to you and feel compassion for you. 
Um, and so you have to have that to create those connections. And those are the connections that, that make really lasting, um, valuable contributions in, in teams anyway. Yeah, I, I really agree with that. Do you do the same sort of thing with your kids? Uh, look, I try to. In fact, my, my son said something to me in the car the other day, which was which really surprised me. We were driving to a basketball match. He's quite a good basketball player. And um, he was playing in a final and he was a bit nervous. And I could see he was a little bit on edge. And I said, it's all right if you're feeling nervous or whatever. And, and, and so we're talking about that a little bit. And he said, he's like, no, you know, I'm, I'll, I'll be tough about it. And I said, it's okay to not be tough. I said, I cry. People cry. And then he said to me, you know, he said, I can't remember ever seeing you cry, mm. which I thought was amazing because I, I cry. it's not that I cry often, but I certainly don't hide it when I do cry. But but I guess I realised that, that I don't do it in front of my kids very often. And so so that, I mean, that sort of was an interesting realisation for me that the vulnerability tends to come in certain times and maybe I'm more open with some people than I am with other people about it. Yeah, yeah. It, I, I remember when I was, uh, I, I was a single mum for most of my daughter's life and, and I was driving her to kindy one day and I'm, I, I'm making it all up as you go along, as you do. <laughs> and, yeah, that's parenting, yeah. <laughs> and... And I realised that uh, I was I was just not feeling like I had an answer to a question or something around parenting or coping or whatever else like that. Yeah. And so I just I just shared it with her. She was only very young at the time, uh, it, it, obviously able to speak to me and communicate and so on. And it was it was really a pivotal moment in in my being a parent because. I wanted, I wanted to be sure, first of all, that she knew that I was human and not perfect and that I was yeah. definitely going to fail and make mistakes. And I also wanted to be sure that at any time ever in her life, for any reason, that if something was wrong, that she could feel safe enough to come to me. So I knew that I needed to yeah. actually demonstrate that to her as... I'm a, I'm a messy human right now. I don't have all the answers. <laughs> That's it. And, and, we're, and we're entitled to be messy humans and we're yeah. all going to be messy at, at certain times. Yeah. You know, for, for me, a really sort of seminal moment happened a couple of months ago um, when normally I'd made a, a commitment to my partner uh, for an extended period of time. And you know that I travel quite a lot because of my work overseas. Um, and I was I was working on, on an agreement where I was never away for more than eight days a month. Mm-hmm. And then just because circumstances change and, you know, my vote's getting bigger and, and the kind of work that we do is getting more practical in its nature, I had two consecutive months where I was away for 15, 16, 17 days in the month, mm-hmm. back to back. And, it, and you know, my, I know that when I'm away, it affects my kids, obviously. And, and when I'm away, I do everything I can to write to them and Skype to them every day and all that stuff. Um, but I was a, I was a, about day 14 of the second month um, and my two older kids texted me on Instagram to say, Dad, it's time to come home. Okay. Um, and that that was – that, and so now I've come home and, and my partner and I have a, again agreed that we're going to revert back to this eight-day-a-month thing and, and I'm not going to go past it anymore because it, it, it's clear that it, that it has an effect and that um, they're looking for a more permanent presence Yes. Um, and, and so independent of the other things that go on in life, that must, that has to be the priority. Um, and so, you know, if that means more trips for less time away, so more months away, but in, in smaller chunks, because that's what's manageable for them, well, then that's what we'll do. 
Well, even that, though, Adam, is is very different to when I was raised. Is a, a, a very different to the expectations of fathering. Even still, to a large degree, that the the father is this shadow that moves in and out of the house at odd times. Except that, and I love that that's changing. I love that there is this sense that that motherhood and fatherhood is an is an equal engagement with children. It's not. Um, the, 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 the time and effort and love and care is very, very much uh, carried by both partners. Yeah, but I, look, I, my sense of that, I, I agree that there's, there's no question that's changing in, in society. Um, but I also think, um, I really believe that there are just some people for whom parenthood is something comfortable and second nature and something they enjoy. Mm-hmm. And there are people who don't. Yeah. Um, and, and for whom it is a real challenge all the time. Um, I, you know, I, I never grew up wanting to get married, but I always grew up wanting to be a dad. So I've, I've always wanted children and, you know, th- those four kids are my heart and soul. And, you know, independent of whatever happens in my life, that is the most important job I have. Yes. They are the most important people in the world to me. And so, so you know, it, it's... Um, but I, I recognise, and I have friends and, and acquaintances and colleagues for whom they would definitely not say the same thing about their kids, mm. um, which is sad. But but everybody has their sort of own reality around that. And I, you know, I'm really sad for the people who feel an obligation to have kids because that's what society says you do when you get married, but never really wanted them anyway. Yeah, yeah. Um, I, I think that's just about the, the most tragic thing that can happen um, is that those kids then grow up in a household with with a parent who, who can't show their love and, and, and connection, um, and you have a parent who, who feels an obligation to children that, that they feel disconnected to anyway. Mm. Yeah, nicely said. So you, you made a comment uh, that self-care, that you're very passionate about self-care, uh, particularly as a leader. Can you speak about how you manage your own self-care, some of the things that you do towards that? Yeah. Yeah, so that so so again, this is sort of a, a newer realization, only three or four years old for me. Okay. Um, so I used to be, you know, part of that brigade that just thought you worked yourself like a dog twenty hours a day, because you were the boss and that's what it was expected of you. But but you do get to a point where you recognise that that's unsustainable, and I don't think it's necessarily a coincidence that those things, those realizations happen as you get older, and you don't have the same physical capacity, and and you have more in your life, and. And so, you know, when you're 18 and 19, 20, 21 working and you can work 20 hours a day, that's different to when you're 40 and you have four kids. Um, so you, for me, the self-care is around understanding that when you need to switch the brain off, when you need to toggle between. So for me, it's kind of there are three things. I'm either fully family, I'm fully work, or I'm kind of in often in this in-between phase where I'm hanging out with the family, but if work needs me, I'm there, or I'm hanging out at work, but if home needs me, I'm, I leave straight away. So I'm kind of toggling between those three things. And some of that is self-care and understanding when you need to go between them. Um, for me, it's been about health. It's been about fitness. It's been about sleep. It's been about recognising the kind of environments in which I find stress. It's recognising, you know, a new thing for me is, rec- is having recognised that I need silence a, a little bit every day. I, I actually just need some time 100% to myself during the day 
to be able to switch the brain off or to be able to hyper-focus on something where I know I'm not going to be distracted by anything else. Um, so sometimes that time is, is a restful time. So I've been doing meditation again. Um, and then at other times, it's about hyper-productivity where I don't want to be thinking or dealing with anything else at that moment but this particular challenge. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and so the recognition of that, um, I've learned, for example, you know, how I tra- – because I travel so much um, – what kind of travel and what kind of patterns – are best for me in terms of making sure that when I land, I'm as refreshed as I can be to be productive. I've recognised equally when I'm flying home the kind of patterns I need so that when I land, I'm 100% there for the family again for the first few days when I get back and I don't go into work. There, there are all sorts of little things. It sounds fantastic, that you, first of all, that you've reached that place. So do you have anything that you do on a very, very consistent sort of day-to-day basis? That, you know, yes. No matter what, no, no matter whether you're traveling or whatever else like that. Yeah, so so a newer thing for me has been around exercise. So yeah. every day I have to get a bit of exercise. Um, and sometimes it's, you know, it's walking. So, for example, the kids got me a Fitbit for Father's Day and I made a commitment when they gave it to me that I would walk 10,000 steps every day for a year. Mm-hmm. Just and, and what that means is that if I've had a day sitting on my ass in an office, in meetings or in a workshop or at a conference – and I've only done 2,000 steps at 9 o'clock at night, it means I'm going for an hour and a half to two-hour walk so that by the time my head hits the pillow, I will have done my 10,000 steps. And so it forces you to get out and be more active. Another thing which has been great for me is, is sort of re-engaging the meditation, um, which has been terrific for me. Uh, I think another thing uh, in terms of my general um, well-being has been around some of the things that I eat. So I, I've never really drank much alcohol in my life um, but I've started to cut out lots of other things like I don't drink soft drinks at all anymore and so there's little things like that that just make me feel significantly better actually and um, and I think the other thing is uh, one thing I've had for years and years now it, because I like photography which is one of my passions um, I try and take at least one photo a day because I and not uh, not of random things like I, I specifically look for beauty in nature so if I can find something beautiful in the day every day, it changes your perspective about what the day is. So whether it's, you know, the sun breaking through the clouds or it's a bird on a tree or it's, you know, a, a river or whatever it is, just to find something every day that you go, the world is beautiful yes. and just reinforce that. Fedor Dostoevsky, I can't pronounce his name, um, um, Beauty Will Save the World. <clears throat> That's his quote. Yeah. Uh, and you probably don't know this, but I do a daily blog called Beauty of Beginnings with the sunrise over the Pacific. It's, um, oh, beautiful. Yeah. <laughs> so there you go. So um, have you ever gone through, in parenthesis, a dark night, a, a dark moment, a dark period of time? Oh, absolutely. Okay. Many, many of them. Many of them. Um, yeah. Where, particularly, I, I think when I when I um, when I broke up with my ex-wife, so it's the mother of my older two children, um, and I have my older children half the time, and my younger children obviously all the time. I went through six or seven months. I, I just I was a lost human being. You know, for nearly a week, I just lay on the floor crying in the dark on my own in the new apartment that I had, which was I was living on my own um, after having been with the family for a while. Um, the realization of the choice that I'd made to end that relationship and that what it meant was that I wasn't going to see my kids every day had finally settled in because I think you can intellectualise it before it happens but to experience it 
in real time is a very different thing when you come home from work and there's no kids there to give you a hug. There's no kids to read when you put them to bed and there's no bath time and there's no, you know, you're not cooking dinner for more than one person. I, I, there was six or seven months where I was just a, a shattered, broken person. But you build yourself back up and you recognise that the reason you made that choice was, was so that, in fact, they would be better off in the long term. And you recognise that, yes, you don't see them every day, so the days that you do see them, you try and make those things work so that they're even more enjoyable than they would be otherwise. And and you get through. I mean, I think perspective is important. Again, I think self-care is important. I think recognising when you need help and asking for help is important. I think knowing, really knowing that it's okay not to be super happy and, and vibrant every minute of every day um, is critical. You know, we're human beings and we have good days and bad days and that's part of life. We, we, we can't go through this Instagram superficial sense that everything is always perfect all the time because it, it's just not. Mm. Yeah, I agree. That's one of the things that I recently realised that I was looking at social media and feeling terrible because all these people seem to be having these glorious, glamorous lives that didn't reflect the current reality of my own. <laughs> And so I yeah, felt I, terrible. Yeah, I, that's it. And, and I am convinced that, you know, 99% of those people have that that glittery, glamorous life for literally the two minutes of the day that they took <laughs> that photo and created it. And the rest of the day is exactly like your life and exactly like my life. Yes, yes, yes. Very good. So when you were in this place, uh, the, the what were the strategies that you used to sort of uh, get yourself back up off the floor? Um, I spent a lot more time with my parents and my sister and her family, just sort of reconnecting to my roots. Um, and and I let them help me rebuild myself by knowing that although I didn't see the kids every day and, yes, what was going on was painful, people still loved me and they still loved me and that love was, you know, was always going to be there, uh, which made a huge difference. Um, and then and then it was about making very firm decisions because that, that really helped create some priorities for me about, well, okay, uh, my life is now a different set of circumstances. I'm responsible for more things when I have the kids on my own. How am I going to, A, manage those things? What kind of experience in life do I want those kids to have when they're with me? Uh, an ex-girlfriend a long time ago taught me this really amazing lesson. Our relationship wasn't great, but she, but the lesson endures many, many years. And she used to tell me that, you know, every relationship, it, you can only ever be responsible for your half of any relationship. And so you can't be responsible for how people interpret what you say and how you act or what they do with it or how they respond to it. You can only put forth what you think is the best thing for the mm -hmm. relationship. And so I really thought about that in the context of my kids I think about it often in the context of the people that I work with day to day. And so you want to bring your best self forward as much as you can. And going through that dark period helped me start to understand that I had control over the times I did have in those circumstances with the kids and those, the time with the kids. And so how did I want to be in those moments? Because it, I think it would have been easy to default to bitterness and, and, and all the other stuff about my ex. But um, you just have to make a conscious decision that you need to rise above that and and be the father rather than the broken, the broken partnership. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. yeah. And so, so, you know, it helped really prioritise a lot for me going through that.
Very nice. You, you, you made this comment about your family, let them help me. Was that something that was difficult for you to let? Uh, yeah, you, you, it, it was at the time. Right, okay. <laughs> it, it, it was at the time. A, because, you know, I'm, I'm the oldest in the family of, of the kids, of my parents' kids. Yeah. I had had some success for, for a reasonable period of time in business. Yeah. For a long time, I was self-sufficient. So, you know, I bought my first house at a very young age, in my teens, and, you know, I'd had businesses overseas. And, and so the idea that I needed to come back and ask for help at that point in my life was very difficult. But you kind of reach a point where you just don't have a choice because you recognise you can't do it on your own and you'll, you'll literally never get off the floor if you don't ask for the help. And so, so that, yeah, it, it was a difficult task at the time, but it was made considerably easier by how welcoming the whole family was. Yeah. And what did you learn about yourself in that asking? In that, because that's that that's the the real point of vulnerability, isn't it? It's when you're when you're really really broken, and there is a whole there's a part of part of your ego there, which is the self sufficiency and the all of the story up until that point, and and you know that if you don't put your hand up, you probably it's really the only choice that you have right now. That's that real vulnerability. Yeah, I, I think the, I think what it taught me was was just that it's okay to be vulnerable. Yeah. That, uh, you know, you learn what un unconditional love is. You you understand, you know, it was, it was kind of this irony that here I was wallowing in hurt and pity because I couldn't be the father I wanted to be because I didn't get to see my kids every day. And yet it was my father and mother who were showing me what unconditional love is and that you're there when you need them. And so it was a sort of a timely lesson to learn as you were going through that because, um, they were showing me the parents I needed to be. Very nice. So what does success mean to you now? Oh, this question, this success <laughs> question. Look, I, I don't know, to be honest. I, I think it's an evolving thing and, and I don't, I think every time you, you reach a marker or a milestone that you, I think it's natural to then go, well, how much further can I go? And if you're determined that you can go further, then how is the first thing a success? So, you know, my sense is that we don't celebrate small successes enough and we, we over-celebrate superficial large ones. Yes. Well, that's, first of all, I'll take your answer that you don't really know and that it is evolving. I think you're absolutely right. And, uh, and I also agree with you that I, I fit the same category. Don't celebrate the small. It's one of the reasons why I started my daily blog. Was <laughs> I wanted to be present to this gorgeous thing that happens every single day. Yeah. <laughs> that, that never think, fails to happen. I think it's really important. Yeah. Yeah. And particularly, you know, as you articulated, in the Instagram world where you're looking at other people's perfect lives 24-7, you have to recognise that sometimes, you know, one of the things that we, we've got this um, this young guy, Joel, who works with us, he's fantastic, um, and he introduced this this tiny little kind of nothing idea, but it's it's proved to be this great thing in our office, where whenever we have even a little success, we have a little bell in the central table of the office, and you have to ring the bell if there's a success. Now, everybody can determine for themselves what that success is, yes. so it doesn't have to have been something that's in the strategic plan. It can be, hey, I really wanted to get our phone bill down, and I've negotiated a better outcome for the office. Ding, I'm ringing it because I got it down by five bucks a month. Or 
Or, you know, I, I wanted to go, we wanted to open a chapter in this country and we just signed the contracts, ding. Or we got three new members or we got two new volunteers. Or People themselves can determine what the success is, but by hearing the ding, you know something positive has happened. And and, and that's a nice reinforcement that to remember that, you know, we, those small things, when added to other small things, end up taking you a long way. Yeah, yeah, lovely. Very nice. So what does power mean to you? Oh, well, <laughs> power. So, look, I... I I'm uncomfortable with the idea of power for a variety of reasons. Okay. Um, I, I think there's a real distinction between positional power, mm -hmm. delegated power, and then sort of earned power. I think I think they're very different ideas, and I think our society gets deeply confused by them. Mm. And so, you know, and in my, you know, I work in pol in the political sphere all the time. Um, and so positional power to me is the power of elected officials. Yeah. These are people who have a title and they have a seat. And by virtue of that seat, we're meant to just give them respect and assume that they have particular power. And some of the laws of their power are enshrined, and so there's not a lot you can do about that. But they seem to confuse positional power with earned power. Yeah. And so they think because they've been elected to a seat, they have the right and they have the expertise to make decisions on our behalf. And so I say to them, no, you've been elected to a seat for a temporary period of time. You did nothing to demonstrate your expertise to put you in that seat because our system doesn't require you to. So you have positional authority, positional power. Mm -hmm. Delegated authority is when those people then allow other people to have power against other people, a, a, a third group. So, for example, a minister might empower an NGO or a governing body or a commission or a police force or whatever. And so they then have powers to enact particular rules and, and behave in particular ways. And then there's earned power. And to me, there's nothing more important than earned power. And that's the capacity to um, demonstrate to a group of people for whom you assume a position of leadership by virtue of your behaviour. So you've shown them that you have their best interests at heart. You've brought them along for a journey. You've demonstrated uh, integrity in the intent. Um, your behaviour is such that is supportive and empowering and compassionate and empathetic. Um, and so they enable you to have power based on behaviour as opposed to based on a title or a seat or a, or a position. Um, and, and I think we get those things as a society deeply confused. And it's why we're starting to see you know, to your example before about the young people in America and um, and we're certainly starting to see in my vote um, significant political change is because people are starting to wake up to those differences and acknowledging that, hey, yeah, that person might be the Minister for X or the Member of Parliament for Y, but actually they don't know what they're talking about and they've demonstrated no real leadership ability and we're not going to follow them because they haven't done anything to earn our respect for that fellowship. So to me, that that's that's where the sort of power dynamic is at the moment. So I, I'm just going to throw into this mix, and it sounds like you've really thought a lot about this, which is fantastic. What about those that have uh, accumulated power through, in parenthesis, uh, their success, status, stuff, money, accumulation, et cetera, et cetera? So, I, I, look, I... For me, that money doesn't equal power for me. Mm -hmm. I, I, I understand why it does for other people, and I understand why in a materialistic world um, the more things you have, 
the more you're demonstrating your power, your capacity to have things. But to me, power and leadership is, you know, you can't have leadership unless you have followership, Mm -hmm. right? But if you are forcing the followership, then it's meaningless. Mm -hmm. It's the same way I'll use another analogy. So, um, you know, it used to be when I was growing, when I started my first business 20 odd years ago, Everybody was talking about networking, networking. You know, you've got to be a great networker. You've got to go to all the networking events. And people used to come up and go, well, you know, I have this person in my network and that person in my network. And I met this guy who is a – and I, I use – I'm using the air quotations now as I say this – who was a professional networker. He became famous for being a professional networker. And at the time, my business partner was a very, very well-known sporting personality. And I introduced this individual to my business partner. And then I met the same professional networker a couple of months later at a different event, and I looked different and was dressed differently, and so he didn't recognise it was me. And in the conversation he was having with me, he was explaining how within his network he has so-and-so sports person who was my business partner. And I just thought to myself, you're now trading and leveraging off this idea that there's somebody else there within your network which is meant to make me feel like you must be impressive if you know that person. I know that you don't even really know that person because I made the introduction for you and you haven't spoken since that first conversation. And so it, I, I think power has a, and leadership is a lot like that. If, if it's not being demonstrated every day, then it's meaningless. If people won't follow you when you need them to follow you, then it's meaningless. If you need to coerce them or bribe them or pay them or threaten them, then it's meaningless. And so, you know, having wealth is not the same as having power. It's having wealth. I know plenty of wealthy people who are not great leaders, just as I know plenty of leaders who are not wealthy people. But we seem to bring those two things together because for whatever reason, leadership and capitalism have seemed to merge in our sort of social psyche. Mm -hmm. And I think that that's a problem. Mm -hmm. So what about someone like the um, Rupert Murdoch's of the world who... uh well, Rupert Murdoch is the greatest threat to democracy in at least three countries. Yeah. He, he, has, he has power uh, that he wields that is both unconstitutional and abhorrent from a social perspective. He needs to be stopped, and he's a, the exact example of leveraging, um, and it's not even financial power because his money is irrelevant. He has power by virtue of the assets that he can put in front of the masses mm-hmm. Um And I have spoken to numerous politicians who have made it plainly clear to me that they are afraid of him Mm -hmm. and that if you are in politics in either the UK, the US or Australia, you have to be afraid of him. Mm -hmm. There's a whole new world order starting that is not afraid of him. Mm -hmm. So Rupert Murdoch, there should be a royal commission into Rupert Murdoch and what he does and the way he, he wields whatever power he has. And, again, I don't think it's power I think it's access is what he has. He can choose to do whatever he wants with that access. There should be a question in a sophisticated, enlightened, educated society about how much access and control of narrative any individual or organisation should have. I think both sides of the political sphere for a long period of time have been compromised in their ability to make judgments about what's in the best interest long-term for our community because they are both having to play the same game to keep him happy so that they can win elections. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and I think that that is an inherent problem. But, but again, you know, 
is anybody following Rupert Murdoch? Would the people who work for Rupert Murdoch keep working for him if he stopped paying them? No. Most of them wouldn't. How many people outside of those that work for him and get paid for him would follow him anywhere? Not many, I reckon. If he didn't have the ability to go to a group of largely um, disinterested, disengaged or uneducated people around politics to manipulate a conversation, would anybody believe him because he's an expert? No. His leadership and his power is purely predicated on the ability to create a narrative for a large, for largely a group of people who aren't paying a whole lot of attention. It's you, it's a very interesting uh, thing that you've raised here because what I'm hearing sort of behind all of the points that you're making is is very clearly distinguishing sort of the nuances that we've packed into the meaning and the word power. So in reference to the Rupert Murdochs, you're sort of you're distinguishing that that his his perceived power comes through this asset of propaganda because Correct. that's what it is. And, and and I'm suspecting that with the unpacking of this, really looking at uh, how we have conflated perceived power with something else, that in the unpacking there might actually be a sense of um, it's the the awareness that 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 of what we've done first of all, uh, what we as a as a society have done to give X Y Z this in parenthesis power when in actual fact it's something else oh that's a hundred percent correct mm. you know I, and i think uh, i think anybody who is advocating i mean this is my problem with politics in general because it's so ideologically driven anybody who's advocating an idea a policy idea or a social idea as rupert does through all of his media assets if you are not prepared to show the full spectrum of facts and data about those issues for fear that the people won't believe what you think or that you can't convince them in light of all of the, the truth and the fact, then actually you have very little real power because you don't even have the power of integrity of your idea. And so this is something that I've said to my voters, said to, to numerous politicians around the world. If you actually believe that and you believe that people should see it that way, then let them actually see all the facts and make your argument. But if, if in light of all the facts, they don't believe you or they don't believe your course of action is the appropriate course of action, given everything that's available to them to understand on all sides of the argument, then you have to acknowledge that what the people want is where you should go, because that's what democracy is. Mm -hmm. And so one of the problems with media, one of the problems with politics, one of the problems with academia is that what you start to see is that people will advocate only for the facts that suit their own argument. Um, and because people don't have time, are disinterested, are disengaged, they won't go to see whether what is in front of them is the full spectrum of information, whether it's even correct, whether it can be re peer reviewed and is it fact, but it's there. And so if you own 75% of the media and all that 75% is all telling you the same thing and you have neither the time nor the inclination to see if it's true, right, or the whole spectrum, then at some point it's just easier to believe what's in front of you. Mm -hmm. And that's what we have. That's why the media ownership laws that were changed a year and a half ago to allow Rupert to consolidate even more media assets are an absolute disgrace. They are a social terrorism on this country. 
because you already had a place where you had such a consolidated ideological view. And now what you've done is open the door to let that consolidation go even further. It, it It was about as socially and irresponsible a piece of policy I can ever remember in my 43, nearly 43 years. Hmm. So, so sort of to close on this, um, and I love that you've, you've got this, this breadth of interest in, in power, how is, how is this conversation shaping you showing up as a man, in coming back to the sort of the central thesis of this conversation, engaging in the world? Uh, has it has it informed you in any particular way that the, your exploration and, and understanding of, of power? I think it's evolving. I think it continues to change and and shape whatever kind of leader I may or may not be. You know, a, a lot of it is being inquisitive and 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 asking my close team, you know, how can I do it better and how can I be better and um, and you know, part of that session that I said that we were all crying in a few weeks back or a couple of months ago. There was a lot of, you know, we had a lot of very frank conversations for everybody in the team and, and all of us got to hear what was working and what wasn't working for the people around us. Um, and that can be quite confronting, but you can either take that really defensively and go, well, you know, fuck you, I'm not going to listen to you, this is who I am and deal with it. Or you can go, well, actually, I really respect and love you people and we're all here for the same reason and we all want the same outcome. So if what you're telling me is I need to get better at X or get better at Y, you know, I need to take that on board and really do something about that. And so so I think it continually evolves and it evolves because as humans we evolve and our experience evolves, but it also the nature of our working environments evolve. And so who my vote was five years ago is different to who my vote is now. Um, and so the context of your work changes and the people that you deal with change today and have a phone call with a government official or a president or a prime minister. Five years ago, that was unheard of. And so who do I need to be and how do I need to to behave in those changed environments and those changed circumstances? And then equally, how do I change to be accommodating for the leadership that's required without changing so much that the bits that are working get left behind? Um, And equally, not be a different person, because I think for me, one of the most important things about great leaders, the best leaders I've ever met, are all authentic and so what you don't want to do is lose your your authenticity and and mainly because the people who deal with you every day they'll be the first people to pick up that you're behaving in a way that is not authentic and then you lose their respect and there that's the respect that matters the most the people that you deal with on a day-to-day basis uh, very nice. I, I, I'm not going to jump into what authentic means because that's that's a whole other conversation. <laughs> but uh, I, I I just want to confirm with you that authentic also means that it sort of circles back to what we said earlier that it's not perfect that you have that we all have some 100%. blunt we all have some blunt edges and we all make mistakes and so authentic is yep. is is uh, allowing for our quirky crazy, sometimes upside down in your description, outspoken and opinionated with a revolutionary bent. <laughs> <laughs> and, and often makes mistakes in brackets. Yeah, Yeah. right. Okay, great. So that, that is encapsulated in the, in the term authentic. Just in, in closing, a couple of things. My vote, what's the, what's the uh, what, what do you see happening in the next, say, 18 months, two years? That you're looking oh, lots. forward lots um, anything that yeah, you want so, to speak to or um that yeah, you can look, speak the, to the, certainly the, the the big stuff for us at the moment probably where where most of our attention is focused um is in india and the united states um right now 
So we have a, an election coming up in May in India next year, and we'll have hundreds and hundreds of candidates running in, in 26 plus states who will either be my vote independent candidates or will be members of the, the um, Democratic Party of India that has adopted our entire model and, and constitution and operating behaviours. Um, so, so that's a, a big focus because we think that we can win quite a few seats in India. Outside of that, we're focused on the United States and building that chapter up. We're going to be running a couple of votes there. One is a gun policy vote and one is a water vote in Iowa. So, so their focus is for us as well. We have been, and I won't give any more information about this yet because I'm trying to ascertain how real this opportunity is, but there is a communist regime that has approached us in the last month um, and asked whether or not we can assist them in turning their nation into a democracy. I don't know how real that is yet. I'm trying to figure it out. Uh, if it is real, it's certainly the most interesting thing we will have ever worked on before, and that could consume the next few years for us, I suspect. Um, so so there's, there's some interesting things going on. And then, of course, we have an Australian election coming up next year. So <laughs> there are no boring days. No boring days. That's very exciting. Uh, is there anything else that you would like to add before we close? No, look, just, just come to the website at myvote.org.au um, or myvote.com for the US site or myvote.in for the Indian site. And, you know, if you have any questions or, or you want to get involved, just uh, just reach out. We, we, we love talking to new people who are passionate about making the world a better place. And is, is there any particular place that you would like to be reached from a contact point of view yourself? Uh, personally, um, I think it's easiest to get me on LinkedIn Okay. Um, that's probably the the yeah. That's probably the number one place to get me. Or you can find me on Twitter if you don't mind swear words and um, <laughs> fairly ideological political rants. Yeah, outspoken and opinionated with a revolutionary bent. <laughs> Twitter. That, that, that's it exactly. <laughs> well, uh, thank you so much uh, for taking the time to speak uh, with me, Adam. It's been really fantastic. I love what you guys are doing at My Vote. I love the modelling that you are creating for your kids and for leadership and all of that sort of stuff. So bravo and thank you. Oh, thank you so much for having me. Pleasure. To listen to more of these conversations and access the show notes, visit 223am.com. That's the number two, the number two, the number three am.com and experience a whole new kind of success and fulfillment. If you've got what it takes, experience a session directly with Dr. Christine McDougall. Visit 223am.com and apply now. Thanks for listening.